it's a pretty mundane title, but don't, but don't fear. The, uh, the issues are really important and uh, actually very interesting, especially from a uh, federalism perspective. Uh, and this is the Federalist Society. I'm going to just read, uh, because I think it captures a lot of what we're going to be talking about, the program description uh, that was on the uh, materials. And, and, and then I'm going to add a little bit of gloss. One of our panelists, Diane Muds, who is listed on the program, her plane had uh, mechanical problems coming out of Des Moines this morning. Uh, so she's not able to be with us, so that gives us uh, the, the others of us a little more time. So I'm going to add a little bit of gloss myself. Uh, and, and then uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists, uh, of course, before they start. Now, the program. Uh, description says that the convergence of voice, video, and data on internet protocol-based platforms undermines the traditional regulatory role of the states, public utility statutes that gave states authority over in-state voice communications are now quaint, not to mention near meaningless, in an era of voice over internet protocol communications that refuse to respect state boundaries, much less uh, state regulatory edicts. Should state regulation of communications thus wither in the face of the dynamic converged broadband platforms? Or do states still have a regulatory role going forward, albeit a quite different role than when they regulated incumbent telephone monopolies? Now, the, uh, I know a lot of the veterans will know what I'm going to say next, but I think so, there may be people who aren't quite as familiar with it. But, I think to, to understand better the context uh, in which we're having the, the discussion today, it's useful to understand that the Federal Communications Act gives the FCC the authority over interstate communications and reserves uh, the authority over intrastate communications to the states. Now, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but, but in general, that's the, the scheme. And under this regime, jurisdictionally, traditionally, was determined by the origination and termination points of a communication. Uh, so, you know, a phone call from Richmond, Virginia, to Baltimore, Maryland, would be interstate. From Richmond to Norfolk uh, was interstate. Now, in, in the earlier era, it was characterized primarily by analog narrowband communications. It was fairly easy to determine the points at which communications originally and terminated because these points correlated pretty closely with the location of facilities that were fixed. Not so, of course, in the digital broadband era uh, of today, where tracking the origination and termination of digits is pretty much practically and economically infeasible. Cell phones, PDAs, laptops, uh, other types of uh, digital mobile devices. In effect, you carry your address with you uh, wherever you go. So along with, with you, you have that technological factor and, and what we call convergence that I mentioned earlier, along with the increased uh, competition in the market place uh, that also in large part results from uh, the development of new technologies uh, that has occurred uh, at a more rapid, ever more rapid pace uh, makes it 
uh, imperative, uh, or at least there's a compelling reason to, to re-examine the traditional regulatory role of state EUCs. Now, just as a backdrop, uh, a further backdrop to the discussion we're going to have, I, I, I want to talk briefly about a proposal that we developed at the Progress and Freedom Foundation. Uh, it, it's a model, new model communications act, which we call the Digital Age Communications Act. And because it has a, a federal state component, and, a, and again, I think that will provide some context that the panelists will be able to, to uh, discuss and disagree with or, or support or whatever. And by the way, this Digital Age Communications Act uh, is embodied in a bill that Senator Jim DeMint introduced. Uh, it's S-2113. So if, if what we say really interests you here, then you can take a, take a look at that. Now, the I'm just going to uh, talk about a couple aspects of this this Digital Age Communications Act, not the, not the whole thing, but, but the, a key... Uh, a key aspect of it, sort of at its core, uh, is a different type of regulatory framework from the one that we have now in the Federal Communications Act. And, and it's different in, in this way, to simplify it. Currently, you have a, a bunch of services defined, uh, like cable information services, telecommunications, so forth and so on. They're defined largely by uh, technical uh, characteristics or functional uh, capabilities, and they each have different regulatory regimes associated with the uh, services, uh, so that uh, obviously it makes a lot of difference how you define the services and whether you fall in one service or another have to, uh, as to how you're regulated. What, what the Mod Digital Age Communications Act model, which I'm going to refer to as DACA, what, what that does is substitute for these techno-functional constructs to govern how the FCC regulates a, a competition model. In, in, in essence, what it says is that the, the FCC's regulation, now remember now I'm talking about the federal level, but this, this will obviously relate to the role of the, the PSCs under, under, under this model, but, but at the federal level, uh, regulatory activity will be tied to whether uh, unfair competitive practices uh, are, are found. So it, it basically borrows from the FTC Act a competition type standard and would uh, make that the heart, really, uh, of the, the a new Communications Act uh, that, that would be competition-based. Sort of the other, another important aspect of that, of that model is that, that much of the FCC's work, not exclusively, but, but it would tilt towards having the FCC decide whether their anti-competitive abuses uh, through adjudication, you know, that is case-by-case -case decisions rather than uh, legislative rulemaking. Now, this, the federal-state framework uh, that is proposed, uh, that we propose would essentially do this. It would, it would preempt all of the economic regulation of the states, the traditional economic regulation of the states.
states except for the uh, continued authority of the states for some time to regulate the basic local telephone service rate. I think it's uh, five years is, I believe, what we put in there. And, and, and then the, the big question, of course, is under this competition standard that is at the heart of the new federal act, what, what role should the states play in, in uh, enforcing that? And the, the, uh, the, the group at Progress and Freedom Foundation put together this proposal uh, essentially ended up splitting on that issue. And, and you know, I think that's illustrative of the way that different people would, would think about the state roles going forward. The, some, of the, some of the members preferred that the, all the adjudication that I referred to earlier in terms of what constitutes an unfair competitive act uh, by communications providers should be decided by the FCC. And the states, again, would be precluded from all competition policy decisions. Uh, there were others that thought the FCC should have the discretion to delegate under guidelines uh, uh, authority to the states to conduct these adjudications itself uh, when the allegations concern conduct entirely within the state. That the states would retain a, a lot of consumer protection and, and authority and, and authority to prohibit fraud and so forth. That would that would remain with the states. And just to pick up on uh, uh, the, the subject of the last panel, under this proposal, the uh, authority of states and localities to require franchises for video services. Uh, uh, for new entrants would be eliminated under this proposal so there would be no more state and federal authority for traditional franchise regulation and, and the existing franchises would be phased out within three, three to five years. So that's, that's uh, a proposal against which some of the discussion that takes place might, might be measured. Now I'm going to introduce our panel and we will, we will get started. And with your permission, they all have uh, long and uh, illustrious uh, careers. Had. And I'm going to dispense with a little bit of that, and I'm, I'm going to give you some basic facts in a moment. But one thing I'll say right at the outset, and uh, you can quote me on this if you want to, to anyone, but this, this group of, of panelists that we have here today, uh, the state regulators, of course, uh, Kathleen, uh, uh, just retired from the FCC. They are uh, really among the very uh, most outstanding and knowledgeable and thoughtful uh, commissioners that, uh, you know, in, in the is now serving her second term with the Missouri Public Service Commission. Uh, she was first appointed in 1997, so she's getting close to her, close to her tenure anniversary. Prior to her Public Service Commission service, Connie served in the Missouri House of Representatives, so she's had legislative experience. Uh, she is, this is actually on her resume, or I wouldn't, probably wouldn't bring it up, but she's an alumnus, uh, alumna, excuse me, uh, of the Institute of Law and Economics. Uh, now, that, that's a very, very august and important uh, institute. That's that's actually one that we uh, put together.
together at the uh, Progress and Freedom Foundation, where we've actually invited in uh, we've invited in state commissioners to spend several days talking about uh, Schumpeter and, and Hayek and uh, you know Richard Posner and, and Tim Uris, and just in a very broad and general uh, general way about principles of law and economics that that are applicable to the types of things we're going to talk about today. And I, it's also true, actually, that the other two commissioners are, are alums of that institute as well. Uh, that's why earlier, of course, I said they are the most brilliant, uh, brilliant <laughs> state, uh, of the state commissioners, uh, among the most brilliant. Okay, and Connie, of course, is a lawyer. She graduated from the University of Maryland School of Law, where she was notes and comment editor of the Law Review. Okay, Larry Landis is going to speak next. Larry was appointed to the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission uh, in 2002, and that was a partial term. In 2004, he was reappointed to a full four-year uh, term. Prior to his PSC service, he was president and founder of Market Trends, a marketing communications company organized in 1991. And, and in his resume, there's a long uh, history of being involved in in uh, marketing and, and business affairs, and uh, particularly relevant for today, he's uh, he's a member of the Telecommunications Committee of NARUC, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Uh, next, we're going to hear from Greg uh, Sopkins. Uh, Greg uh, was appointed by Governor Owens of Colorado to the Colorado PUC. January of 2003, uh, and his term, uh, first term expires in January of 2007. Before his appointment, Greg was in private law practice uh, in Denver. He's uh, uh, involved in the communications uh, and public utilities industry. Before that, he served for almost three years as Assistant Attorney General representing the PUC trial staff in cases before the PUC and also represented the PUC in cases uh, in the Colorado courts before the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, and then finally, uh, our uh, last speaker today is Kathleen Abernathy. Kathleen uh, just finished up a very, very distinguished term as FCC uh, commissioner. Uh, she. Uh, you know, she's heard me say this. I don't see whether I don't think she'll, she'll blush because she's heard it. But, but you know, I've, I've, I've been doing this type of stuff for a long, long time. Watched a lot of commissioners. You know, there there are a lot of good ones, just like in the PUC world. But Kathleen really is, as you will see, one of the uh, really one of the, the most thoughtful and I, I think intellectually rigorous uh, uh, commissioners and dedicated commissioners that served on the FCC. She is now uh, a partner with Aiken Gump, where she spent for just uh, you know a month or so. Now uh, she's been in, had been in private practice. Yet particularly relevant to what we're talking about today, she chaired the federal-state <coughs> joint board on universal service. These joint boards are, are are groups of federal and state commissioners that work together on certain issues to study them. And Mr. Kathleen has had that experience and. She has won numerous, uh, and has been recognized in numerous ways for 
her achievements, I'll just read uh, you know, a couple of these. She, she received the President's Medal in 2005 from Catholic University uh, of America here in D.C. And uh, uh, in 2002, uh, the forerunner accolade from women in K-1 telecommunications. And there, there are a lot more of things like that. So with that, I'm gonna, we're going to go down the road here in the, the order that we're sitting and uh, I'll ask each panelist initially to speak for just eight or nine minutes, and that'll give us time to have a good back and forth discussion. Connie. Thank you, Randy. Is this on? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, first, I want to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me. I'm truly honored to be here. And the first thing I would like to tell you is that you heard Randy in his introduction saying that you could quote him, and I certainly hope that you will quote him on his analysis of the panelists today. <laughs> um, we were asked to talk about the role of public utility commissioners at, uh, commissions, rather, and uh, in terms of the federal preemption debate. And as you all know, certainly that debate is not limited to telecommunications regulation, nor is it a new debate. It is, however, a debate that's particularly relevant to telecommunications industry, and particularly so at this time. On one side of the debate, as we heard earlier today, there are those who argue that broad federal preemption interferes with the state's historic role in protecting their citizens against corporate greed or fraud. And the other side argues that preemption is necessary, that, that um, preemption is necessary to prevent states from negatively in impacting the national economy. The historic system of separate and dual authority that under the Telecommunications Act has been difficult from the beginning, and the separations process for allocation of jointly used resources is becoming ever more burdensome. Legal scholars, economists, politicians, and regulators have spent considerable time in this debate and have not yet reached a consensus on the appropriate mix of federal-state roles in today's telecommunications environment. I would posit that whatever the mix, there should be less of a role for government. And I've carefully reviewed the report from the, the DACA working group that, Andy, uh, that Randy talked about this morning, this afternoon, rather, um, on fed the working group on federal-state framework as you, know, if, as you know, if you've read that report or looked at it at all, that working group is made up of some of the finest minds in the think tank world today. And it's not at all surprising to me that this group has developed a logical, progressive, and even perhaps politically acceptable method of structuring the federal, state, local landscape. Understanding that I only have a few minutes to present my views, and, and I'm going to, to focus on that report, I'll briefly tell you those things that I particularly like about the report, as well as briefly explain where I think it could be improved. I like the transition from the current model of legislative regulation to a mostly adjudicatory model, and that's at whatever level of telecommunications regulation. <clears throat> Under the current regime, the public interest standard provides far too many opportunities for regulatory uncertainty and it creates disincentives to investment. The rule of law model provides much more clarity, and I think that most people would agree that we need clarity. 
The preemption of all state economic regulation except that of basic local service with a petitioning process for removal I think is a reasonable compromise. In terms of the competition policy adjudica adjudication argument made in the report, I probably lean toward preemption, but I might not have too much discomfort with giving the FCC some discretion to delegate certain things to the states. I agree that states have a role to play in prevention of unfair, deceptive, unfair or deceptive practices, but I think it must be very clear as the report emphasizes that this role should not be expanded into economic regulation. And I think it's quite possible for those roles uh, to be expanded into economic regulation. <clears throat> With the integrated approach of cooperative federalism that's, that's outlined here, the federal government would set most of the broad goals and the federal, state, and local governments would implement them. This integration would give federal authority over economic matters, as I said, and it would tip the scales toward the states on social policy goals. Agency transition will be required at both the federal and the state levels. There are, as I said, a few areas that I take issue with the report. Um, in its analysis, of, its analysis of competition policy, the report discusses limited delegation of authority from the FCC to state agencies, and it cites an alleged terminating access monopoly being exercised by a small rural carrier within a given state as an instance in which a delegation of authority could foster creative experimentation by the states. I think the result would be to leave in place the political pressures in support of small rural carriers and make acceptable re resolution less likely. In the analysis of consumer protection and social policy, the report discusses the state's role in certification requirements and emphasizes that the requirements should be minimally burdensome so as not to become a barrier to entry. Well, my concern is that overly burdensome is very difficult to prove. The delegation to states of authority to adopt regulations concerning unfair and deceptive practices so long as consistent with federal law, may require carriers to litigate state rulemakings at the FCC or the DC Circuit Court. The argument is made in the report that experiments at the state level can result in other states and the federal government adopting a set of best practices. I believe this is a very indirect and inefficient way to achieve the goal of uniformly adopted best practices. And my preference would be to give the federal government the rulemaking authority with the states limited to the adjudicatory role of enforcement. The parts of the report that deal with uh, right-of-way and franchises and build-out and muni municipal en entry, I believe, are right on target. And I'd like to say in, in relation to the discussion this morning on build-out um, that I think when we get, into, get involved in social policy issues being regulated, sometimes we get to the point where what we do is provide that the, the least, the lowest common denominator is what will be avail available to everybody. When you say everyone has to have everything equally or everything that any one consumer gets that all other consumers are entitled to it, then what you do, you really 
you really make everybody subject to the lowest common denominator. Um, the section in the report on the state and local taxation that calls for preemption of all industry-specific ta specific taxation on electronic communications, I believe, is very well on target. And in summary, I recommend, or I commend, rather, the working group on a superb proposal for an integrated national methodology for telecommunications law. And although there are parts of it with which I am not quite in agreement, I do think it's probably about as close to perfect as any proposal could come and still re remain politically acceptable and practically attainable. Good. Thank you very much, Connie. Uh, Larry? Thanks, Randy. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Governor Engler and Congressman McIntosh this morning for outing Indiana's solution with regard to franchising uh, and to state that we are adamantly and unalterably opposed to federal preemption because we want to keep that all for ourselves. We can talk about that, you know, later on in terms of the Indiana law if you're interested, but uh, I just had to put that on the record. Uh, secondly, as a non-attorney who has attended over the course of the last three years quite a few programs that are associated with CLE credits, I would challenge the Federalist Society to adopt a stratagem with regard to CLEs in which there's a secondary market for credits so that I can sell my, my credits <laughs> to those who may wish to have them. Uh, and uh, with, with that thought in mind, I'd like to talk, uh, take a little bit of a different tack this afternoon by asking you to think about a sector of the economy, a critical sector of the economy, and to think about its characteristics. It's a sector which is critical to the well-being of the national and even the global economy. It's a sector which has been partially deregulated, but that deregulation has been uneven, fragmented, and done in a largely ad hoc fashion. It's a sector which has been undervalued by a suspicious Wall Street. It's a sector in which the investments made by the companies within the sector have been challenged by the critics and called into question for their appropriateness, but a sector in which investment and innovation are essential. It is therefore a sector which is struggling to innovate, to seize the initiative when it comes to technological change. And finally, it's a sector in which there's increasing intermodal competition among companies which had historically been content to operate within the framework of those outmoded silos. Given technological changes and innovation in this sector, there can be little debate that the most efficient way of organizing it and of bringing value to the greatest number of customers, not perfect, mind you, but clearly the best organizing principle is to be found in a market solution. Adam Smith put it very simply and eloquently 230 years ago when he wrote the following in what, what may be the most famous passage in The Wealth of Nations. Every individual necessarily labors to render the annual revenue of the society as great as he can. He generally, indeed, neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much he is promoting it. He intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Now, in certain sectors in the past, the past century, public policy has suggested that the nature of those sectors was conducive to extensive economies of scale and other structural considerations which are best served by a regulated monopoly structure. And for the most part, 
at most times and in most circumstances, this structure has worked reasonably well. Historically, where there's been a consensus for this sort of form format, regulation has been a reasonable, if not an optimal, substitute for the market. Technological and other structural changes, however, have made it necessary to take a new look and to move to a market as opposed to a regulatory model. The problem comes when we seek to transition from a regulatory to a market model, because over the past quarter century, this transition process has probably lost, resulted in a cost of between a quarter and a half trillion dollars in losses covered, vaporization of investments, and bailouts by the taxpayers. The reason for this is very, very easy to see. Over 40 years ago, writing on administrative decision-making in a government context, Blau and Merton observed that any time you make a decision to change the established order, that change can be either manifest, that is, expected, or latent, that is, unexpected, and it can be either functional or dysfunctional. Now, if you consider the odds based on a simple two-by-two two matrix, the odds are three in four that a given decision will produce results that are either unexpected or bad or both. Now, let's go back now and reconsider that business sector I talked about a few minutes ago. Because that sector is not communications in 2006, but financial services in 1980. In a well-intentioned but poorly executed implementation spanning both the Carter and Reagan administrations, this nation implemented a policy which virtually eviscerated the savings and loan industry, cost investors and taxpayers at least $150 billion to bail out, fostered fast buck artists and crooks, and decimated the ranks of savings and loans, slashing by half the number of surviving federally chartered S&Ls from 3,200 in 1986 to 1,600 by 1995. It's important to underscore that no one intended that these should be the consequences. The intent was laudable. Allow depository institutions, banks, savings banks, credit unions, S&Ls, to compete for deposits and to deliver both greater choices and higher interest rates to depositors. This was not a case of Schumpeterian creative destruction in which the companies which were unable to respond to the market were overtaken by more effective and more agile competitors. It was a case of failure of public policy. It was a failure to consider the latent and the dysfunctional consequences of public, public policy. It was a failure of vision, a failure to execute. When the airlines were deregulated, the intent was not to drive legacy airlines out of business, but rather to open up the market. No one said, let's take out Braniff, Continental, Eastern, Pan Am, and Western, among others, and let's force most of the remaining legacy airlines into multiple iterations of competition alternating with bankruptcy protection. Instead, there was insufficient attention paid to the infrastructure, which was the outgrowth of a regulated industry. Legacy operational practices, legacy labor contracts, legacy financial structure, in short, legacy management. Now, you can argue, and I think very persuasively, that the carriers which vanished did not systematically understand the new industry structure, the new basis for securing competitive advantage and resetting goals to secure their core businesses as they were redefined. And indeed, that's precisely the argument that was advanced by Jonathan Burns of MIT, writing in the Harvard Business School Working Knowledge website. Burns is correct. But we need to go beyond that insight to understand that failure to provide 
for adequate transitioning by policymakers and regulators set the legacy companies up for competitive disadvantage due to these operational and infrastructure disadvantages. No wonder the new way of, of discount fare airlines unsaddled by such burdens were able to eat the incumbent's lunch. I could go on and I could cite other examples, but time is limited. Are we better off for that quarter to a half a trillion dollar hit? Generally speaking, yes. But that depends on the criteria you value and the vantage point from which you view the outcome. If you were an employee of Braniff, chances are you would say this was an unsatisfactory outcome. The point is, though, we can't afford to subject even predominantly domestically focused industries to a process which results in the squandering of resources or to a playing field for which, for reasons not anticipated at the time of deregulation was put into play, is skewed in favor of one class of players over others in the market without adequate time for those disadvantaged to make mid-course corrections. So one reason for structuring a role for state regulators in this process is a far from traditional one, maybe even a somewhat radical one, but one that I submit is quite important. That role is as thoughtful voices in the process of moving to a market solution and critiquing the regulatory migration scheme which may be laid out. Now, institutionalizing that role is important, but there's another key area that we want to focus on, and this is the point at which I was going to you know, lead into what Diane Munns is going to say uh, by talking about the Federalism and Telecom white paper, which was produced last year by Nehru. Um, and that role is capsulized in a less frequently quoted passage from The Wealth of Nations. People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Now, ignoring for the moment the colorful nature of this quote, it's the duality which Adam Smith points out coupled with the fact that Adam Smith, 230 years ago, saw it as a problem which leads to an important but a restructured state role. James Madison put it well in Federalist 46 when he wrote, the federal and state governments are in fact but different agents and trustees of the people, constituted with different powers and designed for different purposes. Uh, a contemporary design of those powers is what the Nehruk white paper is all about. It basically scraps completely the notion of traditional jurisdictions and replaces for it the model of appropriate competency. Uh, continuing with Madison's point, the adversaries of the Constitution seem to have lost sight of the people altogether in their reasonings on this subject. Addressing technology, or more appropriately, maintaining technological neutrality and mapping the broad outlines of policy are entirely appropriate to the federal government. But Madison, I would suggest, has the last word here. It is only within a certain sphere that the federal power can, in the nature of things, be advantageously administered. To paraphrase Madison, it's essential that we not lose sight of the interests of the people altogether in the reasonings on this subject. Over the past few decades in particular, the marketing mantra, think globally, act locally, has been repeatedly invoked by the most successful of global companies. When it comes to local execution of global vision, 
when it comes to refereeing parties and disputes, when it comes to protection of the interests of low-income, low high-cost areas and special needs, and when it comes to assuring responsive and effective consumer protection, the states should not only have a role, it's essential that they have one. Very, thank you very much. <coughs> that was great. We got Adam Smith and Orange from MIT and all, all, all from all from the IRLE, I would point out. But start and, and say that uh, I am a proud you hear me yep. I'm, I'm a proud card-carrying member of the Federalist Society um, and that's because it makes me mysterious and clandestine uh, and a maverick um, uh, mysterious uh, because uh, of course it makes me part of the evil cabal um, clandestine I once worked for a law firm that um, essentially refused to allow me to join the Federal Society, so I had to do it on a secretive oh. basis. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and a maverick because I was actually advised before I came out here that maybe I shouldn't come out here because there might be bad press, um, just like Justice Scalia visiting Colorado. Um, <laughs> so the fourth re reason I like it is, of course, it compares me to Scalia. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to take a, uh, a somewhat uh, anti-federalist um, uh, role here. Um, uh, before I do so, I have to to uh, give you the standard disclaimer that I don't speak for the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, and to the extent uh, my blood sugar has been affected by not having lunch, I'm not speaking for myself either. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> my, my, uh, my basic view here is that um, the individual state roles in, in regulating digital uh, communications um, should be diminished uh, over time, if not by uh, commission action itself, meaning uh, state commission action, um, then via legislative or FCC action. Um, I, I certainly concur with uh, Larry's um, thoughtful uh, presentation regarding the danger of moving too quickly and not moving in in a thoughtful way. But I would also submit that there are massive um, consumer gains that can be held up for years and years for the failure to act. And, and of course, uh, you can point to um, the FCC's treatment of AT&T uh, in most of the 20th uh, century and having to own that black phone and or excuse me, having to rent that black phone and uh, not being able to uh, put a cover on your phone book and those sorts of things. Um, uh, there was a lot of rent-seeking that went on, and, and God could only imagine what would have happened had um, that process been expedited uh, by a couple uh, decades um, in, in, to, in terms of technological innovation and massive investment and consumer gains. Um, why would a commission um, be slow to act with regard to 
um, uh, restricting itself from regulating. Um, I think there's a cognitive dissonance associated with being a deregulator regulator. Um, it's, it's, it, take it from me, it's, it's a difficult position to be in. Um, there's a difficulty of most persons acknowledging that you're better off to the world as a potted plant um, than, a, <laughs> than a utility watchdog, which is how um, uh, many uh, people in the press refer to us. Um, there are reliance interests all around you. Uh, um, I have found uh, going to the commission, you become rather isolated because you're not really allowed to talk to um, people who uh, appear before you, and so your your business network becomes uh, the staff people work around you, and the, and and they are very hardworking and they're doing a good job, and and they have um, you know they are acting according to what they think is the best interest of uh, consumers, but. Um, they also recognize that if you deregulate telecom entirely, you may have just removed a third of your staff from employment. Um, so there's that interest working against you. There's even uh, a reliance interest on attorneys. I had an attorney comment to me the other day that he, that he was upset that uh, our commission decided we had no jurisdiction over the Verizon MCI merger because there's no work for him. And I'm, I'm sure he said that in jest, but it, it was just a partial jest. Um, and then, of course, you have... Um, if a commission does restrict itself, you, you have the threat of re-regulation. Um, that is, uh, I think the average term of a state commissioner now is something like six years as a result of term limits, um, whereby when your governor leaves, you, you also often leave. And so a commission can change rather rapidly in terms of its own agenda. Um, and I do find it a little funny about the, the idea of state commissions as their own interest group, but... Um, and Brad's going to get mad at me about this, but um, I received a, um, a uh, April 25 action alert, uh, contact to, to uh, congressional representatives about an amendment that eliminates state authority over terms and conditions of service for wireless. Um, so that, we, and that was to maximize state authority, and that's exactly what the national organization should be doing because it's representing the state commissions, preserve the, the state authority. But it does show you how state commissions become its own interest group in, in maximizing their own authority and why state commissions might be um, slow to act. Um, that's not to say there's been no movement by, uh, by commissions. Um, there's not very m many states that uh, still have pure rate of return regulation over telecom. Um, most states have moved to a price cap uh, type approach. Um, I believe 22 states have had some services deregulated, and, and particularly in urban areas, or services designated as competitive. Um, but I, I would say that most movement in terms of deregulation has been by state legislatures. Um, and I believe there's been 14 uh, partial deregulations and four fully deregulation uh, uh, state legislature actions. Um, in Colorado, there actually was a petition brought before us to um, largely deregulate telecom services and, uh, well, actually to fully deregulate, but then it came in on settlement with various parties and it ended up something less than that. We have a $15 statutory rate cap um, that applies to basic service. This is actually pretty similar to the DACA proposal when you think about it. Um, the first one to five business lines have a, have a price cap. It's an increasing price cap adjusted for inflation. Um, but nevertheless a price cap. And um, there is continuing regulation over what are called public interest features like call tracing, um, 911, uh, pay phones, that sort of thing. But, but everything else um, pretty much has been uh, deregulated in terms of de-tariffing, geographic de-averaging of pricing, 
um, and uh, customers. Uh, the one backstop is customers can file complaints if there's uh, discriminatory treatment or if they believe it's an unjust price for some reason. Um, but I, you know, I will say to, to get there, even after this came into settlement, it was a bit of a battle with, with our own staff uh, who didn't want to accept large portions of it. Um, and that's even though at the public hearings, uh, we went across the state to several different venues and probably six to seven people on average showed up at these venues. It was not a large showing. Um, trust me, compare that to a uh, electric or natural gas rate case and, and uh, there's a lot more people who show up um, with pitchforks. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it is a little hard to get this sort of thing done. Um, we did get it done. We are launching a study to determine what sort of effect uh, this has had, and you know, and maybe this is the answer to what Larry's talking about: is that as different states proceed along, um, perhaps there could be studies as to how that has affected the market, intermodal competition, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, if there is a problem with with uh, some aspect of deregulation, I suppose uh, something could be re-regulated, or the legislature can step in. Um, now, now the interesting question of you know. If there is going to be, if a state moves too slow um, and, and does not want to deregulate, economically deregulate telecom, um, who should step in? Should that be um, the National Congress or, or the FCC? I tend to think that the National Congress, um, uh, you're more likely to end up with uh, ambiguity in a statute. They like to uh, kick things down the road for courts to decide, and you never know what's going to happen with that. Um, it, uh, it, it's more likely to be tepid in terms of controversial issues like universal service, intercurrent compensation. Um, and uh, I think Congress is more likely swayed by interest groups, including states' rights interest groups, um, rural LECs, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, as a result, uh, unfortunately, even though I love the, the DeMint bill, it's an X1 bill, um, you're more likely to see passage of something like the Barton bill or, or the Stevens bill, which was introduced yesterday. Um, now, uh, the FCC, the, the, the initial question is, can it preempt state authority with regard to economic regulation? Well, um, it did so in the FCC Vonage order. And the interesting thing about that order is all the different bases of preemption that the FCC uh, mentioned. Um, as an aside, uh, Colorado did decide not to regulate VOIP service. There was also um, an internal battle fought about that. Um, to quote a former FCC commission, I'm deeply skeptical of uh, economic regulation of nascent services. Have you heard that one before? Um, um, anyway, in this Vonage order, th there were um, several bases of, of preemption, and you can imagine these being applied to all of voice telecommunications today because of decentralization, uh, because of IP technology. Uh, uh, I'll list a few of the reasons. The matter to be regulated has both interstate and intrastate aspects. The state uh, regulation directly conflicts with the FCC's deregulatory rules regarding entry, tariffing, and other issues. State commission regulation violates the Commerce Clause because it has the practical effect of regulating commerce outside a state's boundaries because um, the burdens imposed in interstate commerce are clearly excessive in relation to the putative uh, local benefits, uh, or number three, the unique nature of telecommunications demands cohesive national treatment. Any of those could be applied to the telecommunications market as a whole today. Um, should the FCC preempt state authority? The answer is um, uh, yes, if a state does not move along when there is clear evidence 
of the type of interstate burden we're talking about when there's clear evidence of intermodal competition going on and no longer a need for uh, state economic regulation. Um, but uh, just real briefly, my reaction to the DACA proposal, I think it's an excellent proposal, big surprise. Um, uh, if anything, in one area it is tepid, and that is uh, um, it preserves the state role regarding basic services, fraud, slamming, cramming, and anti-competitive conduct. Now, I agree with preserving the state roles, uh, the state role with all but the latter, uh, anti-competitive conduct. Um, uh, first, with regard to the former, I think states do an excellent job in terms of having an external affairs department that takes consumer complaint calls and tries to resolve issues that come up, and I, I frankly do not know how a national organization uh, would do that. Um, uh, one disagreement about competitive policy. Uh, the DACA proposal provides two choices. First, um, that all competitive policy questions are subsumed within the FCC, which would require adjudication before the FCC when these issues arise. At, um, and, and presumably, you'd have to have a lot of local FCC branches created uh, for that. Um, the second um, choice is the FCC uh, would delegate to the state PUCs uh, to develop their own policy measures, and you could appeal any state PUC decision to the FCC. Um, uh, my problem with those are those are both uh, very litigation-oriented and, and uh, they have a lot of uncertainty about them. Um, the, the, the questions that arise is uh, if the state PUC is involved, what sort of deference should be allowed to the PUC? Um, and second, uh, this sort of model could be too dependent on the FCC's quote-unquote agenda. The F Not that the FCC would ever have an agenda, um, but it is... <laughs> It is a political organization, and it does change over time. And uh, and that's, um, you know, if you want it to act as a court of law, that's it's a difficult thing for a political organization to do that. Um, so uh, I would propose a solution, a third way, which is um, uh, leave the whole matter to antitrust law, which has the virtues of certainty. Um, the common law is well developed. And you can have it uh, tried before uh, an impartial tribunal, uh, such as the Department of Justice or uh, or federal courts, and um, thank you for inviting me. Greg, uh, thank you, and you put some uh, sort of say radical ideas, but but you put some uh, uh, yeah thought from ideas on the table. Now our next speaker is from that uh, political organization that uh, Greg just. Uh, otherwise known as the FCC, I mean, a recent, uh, the most recently retired commissioner. It's probably a title like the, the immediate past commissioner or something, something. like that. Something like that. Uh, but Kathleen, as I mentioned, she you know, uh, has also had benefit in addition to uh, her commission service uh, as such in, in serving on these joint boards with the Thank you very much, Randy, and it is a pleasure for me to be here, especially since you really don't have to listen to me anymore, but, um, <laughs> but you invited me anyway. So, uh, And being up here with all this intellectual fire firepower is great because uh, one thing I learned while chairing the USF Joint Board is just the tremendous pool of talent at the state level, and that's great because these issues are so complex and uh, our country is so vast that to think that all of it will be solved um, at one level is a bit naive. So there are definite 
roles, I think, for both uh, state and federal regulators, but this should come as no surprise. I think they're greatly subscribed for both. Um, as I stated when I was a commissioner, I do believe that fully functioning markets just do a better job of maximizing consumer welfare than regulators. And so if you believe this um, and you support the fact that the marketplace uh, prompts firms to innovate uh, and offer better services and lower prices, then in theory, um, as you enter this more competitive space, regulators should step down. Um, we should, you know, move ourselves away from certain parts and aspects of the job. And we should only uh, engage when either structural factors prevent the markets from being competitive or Congress or state legislatures have established sort of non-market-based public policy priorities that we all recognize are not market-driven and so we'll engage and we'll try and figure out a way to make sure that those priorities are met. Now, as was mentioned I think by Greg, it's just the problem with this approach is that it's fundamentally a bit inconsistent with the general instinct of regulators to back down. There is this belief always in the back of your mind, I bet I could make it better than the market. I'm just going to tweak it just a little bit this way or that way. Once you start down that path, you start creating a lot of unintended consequences and you start adding a lot of costs and delays. And better to step back, wait and see what happens in the market and if there's a problem, address the problem when it's creative. Because what happens is you tend to have situations where you write regs for what might happen. That's not at all what happens, and then it, but it does create more problems. And the real problem is out there percolating, and you didn't really address it. So you have to be willing to have a bit more of a skeptical nature about when and how regulation can insert itself, and probably focus your resources on a lot of these social goals that have absolutely nothing to do with the market. And I think the fact that, as a whole, regulators need to be much more circumspect about regulation is demonstrated by the speed of our technology. We can't keep up with it. It is simply too fast. Regulations that we come up with today are almost inherently because it takes us forever, whether you're at the state or the federal, it just takes forever, and by the time you finally clean the thing up, um, the technology's changed, and the way people are using the technology has changed, and you have this just fabulous rule that would have been great two years ago. So it, it, what I use to illustrate this dilemma is that, look at the typewriter. It was invented in 1868, not really marketed until 1873, that basic typewriter. My mother's parents purchased one for her in 1950 when she went off to college. She used it again in the 1960s when she got her master's. It was given to me to take to college when I went to college. And you know what? It worked fine. And it was consistent with all the other technology throughout all those years. But if you fast forward to 1989 when my stepson went off to college and we got him a computer, it was out of date the next year. That's the environment in which we find ourselves as regulators trying to create the right frameworks and trying not to add unnecessary costs. And that's why I'm very supportive of what uh, of a lot of these efforts, the DACA efforts. DACA? DACA, whatever. Um, the proposals to move from a legislative model more to an adjudicatory model that's focused on competition. Frankly, that's the model that you see uh, Ofcom using over in the UK. It is not nirvana, don't, don't mistake, because it has its own unique set of challenges. But do I think it takes the regulators and moves them to focusing on um, 
more concrete, you know, in other words, first you have to show there's a problem. Is there a competitive problem? And then if there is, move towards um, an adjudication. I think that is a much better approach. The current model we have now, no real-time frames. Stuff can sit forever. If it's particularly hard, it necessarily does sit forever because there is no answer. Intercarrier comp, USF, um, even some of the net neutrality issues. There's no good um, obvious answer and it's fraught with politics and so you have simply no, you have inaction and then technology in the marketplace drives what's going to happen, which is not really, maybe it's not so bad, but I mean, you end up with, with um, huge um, hurdles to trying to adjust the regulatory environment to reflect the fact that the silos are gone, the data travels completely differently, um, that um, the regulatory analysis that categorizes traffic as inter or intrastate, and then let's just go to this whole LATA thing, inter or intralata, which makes it even more crazy. And so you've got to move away from that, but what you, and I think you have to move away from the fact that if you're a, a business serving 50 states, that your bill has to be formatted differently in every state. Huge cost to consumers, um, but a lot of times... It get there. Absolutely, we have to have a transition. A tr you know, you have to remember that when you had a space that was populated by monopolists, you never taught them, it's like taking a kid that you never taught how to manage uh, money or budgets or credit cards and shoving them out the door and saying, here's five credit cards and, you know, just go have fun. So I think with monopolists, you're taking companies that were dependent on a very safe place, guaranteed rates of returns, you kind of review everything, and telling them to immediately enter uh, the competitive world, it, it won't happen. Now, some of them, by all rights, you can't give them an infinite amount of time to sort of get, get with the program, but uh, some kinds of transitions not only make sense because of where we came from, but I think politically it's just the reality we'll have to deal with it. And, um, and I think both at the federal level and at the state level, there, we simply have to embrace that it's a different role for regulators, that we're not rate, rate regulators anymore. It's more of a consumer focus. It's more of a consumer protections kinds of issues. There's rights of way issues, certainly for the states. There's taxation issues. There's plenty of work out there for the states. I'm not worried about that. Um, and I think at every stage, regulators have to be willing to step back and start asking themselves, um, is there a problem here that needs fixing? Or am I assuming that there's going to be a problem? If you're assuming, just wait, see what happens, uh, and try and work with that. And at the same time, um, try and move to a space that is a, can be a bit more nimble as far as dealing with the fact that we are in a space in time where technology is just consistently going to outpace the ability of regulators to keep up with it. So thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Kathleen. And, you know, you can call it DACA or you can call it DACA. It <laughs> works. Uh, I want to uh, ask uh, in a moment the panelists whether they have reactions to their fellow panelists, but I want to make sure Debbie Brovet is thinking of a uh, <laughs> There's a lot of intellectual firepower in that one table, actually. I know Russ Andrews there as well, who's a, uh, just served as a high commission official as well, so probably be looking over there. 
to that table for, for the question. But, it, or, and you two guys up front, too, as well. Brad and But among the uh, panelists, does anyone uh, want to react to anything else that uh, you guys said at all? Anything come to mind? Okay. Uh, well, do we have a question? I mean, I, I have one myself, but I'm going to, I'll get you in a minute. Rick had his, had his hand up. Rick? If, if I'm remembering correctly, the, uh, in one of the iterations of Dr. Project, and maybe it wasn't the federal state framework, but uh, it talked about state block grants for universal service as a suggestion. And I guess I just wanted to get a reaction from the panelists whether to the extent that universal service continues as a social policy, simply handing the money over to the states to be distributed in whatever manner the states deem appropriate uh, is the right way to go, whether there ought to be any limits. Uh, I, again, I don't recall in the DACA project if there was any guidelines or if it was just, if we have to give the money out, we'll give it to the states and the states will do it from there. So maybe, Randy, you want to okay. uh, elucidate and then the analysts can react. Dean, do I need... Do I need to restate the question? No. I'll, I'll just do it uh, briefly. I think that may be in part because of the recording. But this this question has to do with with the distribution of funds for to support universal service, which has been a part of our communications policy for a long time, and, and the role that the states uh, have in supporting universal service in the DACA proposal. Uh, we suggested that the, the states would administer block grants under federal guidelines. And, and it, it, I believe I recall this correctly. You know, Brad probably knows that as well as I do. But I, I, there was a, they contemplated that the states would have this, uh, the flexibility to administer these block grants if they made, met certain performance measures which had to do with penetration rates. So in other words, absent doing that, then they would they would not have the flexibility to administer the block grants. And then, and then the block grants could be used with quite a bit of discretion to, for example, support broadband services, which are not currently part of the, the uh, uh, support under the current regime and, and so forth. Now, sort of with that background, uh, we'll let the panelists respond to the uh, their uh, reaction to that proposal. Well, and the state, and, and, and focus on the state. The um, well, I was just going to say the, the thing that I thought was somewhat attractive about the block grant proposal is that it. Honey, keep that up just a little bit. What I thought was somewhat attractive about the block grant proposal is that it would make the states realize that they've got a certain amount of money to work with, for one thing, and make them prioritize. and. Um, actually, I think there might be some better accountability that way, but your first pr premise, Rick, was if the Universal Service Fund continues, and, and I think, you know, there's such huge issues with that fund that really need to be addressed. I should probably begin by, you know, invoking Greg's caveat with regard to my own opinions and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I think, first of all, Connie has has a good point to make in terms of 
uh, accountability. Uh, you know, if if you look at various aspects of universal service as it's currently defined, you know, there's clearly a need for for better accountability. I think the second question that that needs to be raised is, you know, whether there's going to be some sort of mechanism. Uh, the DACA proposal uh, offers one such by basically capping the amount that's available. Uh, I mean, we keep hearing that with new technologies, we're going to get more efficient provision of services, costs are going to go down, and yet what we see is, with regard to the universal service area, uh, costs are going up dramatically, or at least, you know, the, the so-called, quote, need for funds, unquote, is, is going up. Uh, thirdly, it seems to me that most of the debate with regard to uh, universal service has, has focused around whether we're going to look at uh, embedded costs or forward-looking costs with regard to determination of, uh, you know, what sort of funds are allocated. Well, you know, as I look at that, I, I've raised the rather naive question, if we're looking at embedded costs, then we're looking at a means of providing funds to theoretically an innovative and fast-moving and rapidly changing industry, and we're going to do that with the same sort of model that has governed GM for the last 40 years, uh, which doesn't make a great deal of sense. Uh, if you look at the problems that GM has, they're, they're basically those of embedded costs. So to perpetrate embedded costs in terms of the, the universal service mechanism is, is somewhat questionable. On the other hand, you can look at forward-looking costs. You know, the first thing that I did when I came on to the Indiana Commission, you know, in telecom was to sit on a uni case. It took nine months. Uh, we had 40 hours of hearings with regard to what forward-looking costs really represented. Uh, in which the, the various parties debated over how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, you know, or how many, how many loops could be uh, wrapped around uh, the finger of, uh, you know, a, a commissioner. And uh, the danger with looking at forward-looking costs is that you run the risk of making decisions based on the purchase of Betamaxes. If you look forward and you happen to choose the wrong vantage point, then you've made decisions that have long-term consequences that are fundamentally wrong. So, you know, if you're, that gets back to the whole question of, and I realize it's in a different arena, but technological neutrality, you know, is an issue not only in the normal way in which it's invoked, but also with regard to universal service. What does Washington do with a program in which the uh, contribution level for wireless has gone up from 15% to 28% and, and wireline is now at 10.9% and the, and the program is, seems to be growing exponentially and there is uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fraud and, and waste associated with it while you expand it to broadband? Um, I mean, that's... That's the only solution I've seen put on the table. That's what uh, Stevensville does. Um, you know, I, the block grant idea is a great idea. It's just, um, I mean, because there are things you can do with reverse auction, voucherizing, means testing, uh, cost modeling, 
there are various ways to improve the program, and I've, I've no doubt that states would improve the program, but it's, it's the third rail of, of telecom. And, uh, I mean, our own commission several years ago, before I uh, even got there, had a phase-down of our state high-cost fund in which uh, the presumption is you get uh, more efficient and, and there's more productivity. And so if you want continuing funding at the same level, you have to come back to us and prove it. Um, well, the, the uh, rurals went to the legislature and got that quickly overturned by our state legislature. And, and I have no doubt that that is what's going to happen on a national level. And the one, one point I'd add is that the way the system works today, which is why the block grants, which, by the way, legally you can't really do, I think, today, probably need some legislation. But um, right now the money goes to companies, probably not when anyone really intended. It's not meant to support companies. It's meant to keep prices down for consumers in rural areas. So at least with the block grant, you might sort of start moving away from that idea that certain companies are entitled to it and certain companies aren't. And I don't... You know, and I, I don't want to see companies go under, but frankly, as a regulator, that shouldn't have been my issue. My issue should have been, is the money going to ensure that consumers in some of these higher-cost areas are getting valuable services at reasonable prices? And that's what's missing in the current way that we fund USF. Good. Okay. Next question. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've never said I would call you, did I? <laughs> uh, well, I, I would like to know what our panelists think about the trend in federal legislation. There have been, in, in just about all the bills, uh, some sort of federal consumer protection rules, um, standards. And in, in, um, in the Martin bill and Stevens bill, although they're limited to I think it depends on the industry you're talking uh, about. The, uh, the California Commission toyed with the idea of um, doing service quality regulation of wireless, uh, as everyone recalls. And um, I mean, to me, before you regulate, you need to find some sort of market failure. And, and there really doesn't appear to be a market failure with regard to wireless uh, competition. And so I think. Um, you know, where there is a competitive industry, I have no problem with the federal government stepping in and saying, for example, um, there should be no service quality regulation of wireless um, telephony because at some point that becomes economic regulation. Um, in fact, there's been a debate among federal circuit courts as to whether um, the extent of state regulation over wireless amounts to economic regulation or regulation of entry of wireless. 
and to the extent it does so, um, states are preempted from doing so by Section 332 of the Act. Uh, so um, it the answer is it depends on the industry. Um, I'll just comment. I, I'm not positive that that's the best way to do it by, to, by allowing the federal government to put a cap on what the states can do, but I do think that um, there is great danger in states having that authority to promulgate rules or pass laws to protect consumers specifically for their state because you can end up, in a pat end up with a patchwork that drives costs and doesn't truly protect consumers. You get a lot of political issues in there. You get a lot of uh, parochial interests that really are not specifically protecting consumers, but they are driving costs and slowing innovation. So, um, you know, I, t I tend to lean more toward thinking that the federal government ought to be making the rules and the states implementing them with perhaps some ability to uh, petition for exceptions based on certain circumstances. I'd just like to add one thing, and that is I think that it's not surprising that you see much more of a focus in our today's world on consumer protection than we used to see. Because when you had a monopolist, it didn't really matter. You know, you, you wouldn't get a confusing bill. Everyone got the same bill. You, you didn't need to worry about cramming and slamming. I mean, it was all pretty. And then you regulated the monopolist. And so most regulatory agencies, including the FCC, didn't really have consumer complaints group and didn't and a consumer bureau and those kinds of things. So um, I think the trend towards recognizing that when you have a lot more competitors, it's great for consumers, but there's more opportunities for mischief too, and therefore you see the slamming, you see the cramming, you see very creative ways to you know siphon off revenues um, that, that may very well be illegal that you need, this is an important issue to debate, exactly how you split up between the state and federal, that answer I don't know, but the idea that regulatory agencies, this is a new aspect, probably a more important aspect than micromanaging the tariffs that are filed, I, I agree with that. We are in a different space, and you truly need to be an educated consumer to kind of manage what I would call your media portfolio, your portfolio of how you choose your wireless company, your wireline, your data, your your media, all those things, it's it's not it's not simple anymore. And that means that there are new aspects to regulating in this space. jump in like <laughs> you know fools rush in <laughs> uh, I think that's probably one of the most difficult aspects of this issue uh, because you've got all of the multi-jurisdictional applications to each uh, provider but um, I, I think that the federal government could make the rules delegate the states to to enforce them for their own uh, 
residence. If the, if, if the consumer that has the complaint is within a state, then that state should resolve that issue. I mean, that might be one way to deal with it. And I'm not sure legally if that really works, but that would be my just off the cuff answer. Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at that from the Indiana framework. Uh, Indiana passed uh, significant telecom reform legislation this year, and basically their answer within the state of Indiana is that initially all, all of the complaints go to the commission, whether or not we have jurisdiction uh, with, water, with regard to wireless, for example. We are tasked with monitoring the scope and the nature and the number of complaints. Uh, and we are also charged with reporting to the legislature the results of that process over time. Uh, the premise behind that is that uh, uh, if the marketplace works as it is supposed to over time, that process will be phased down and the role of the commission will diminish. On the other hand, if there are continuing or recurrent problems, or if the problems get worse, uh, then the part of our role is to inform the legislature of that, uh, and they'll make a mid-course correction. Uh, but in, in gen and which goes back to the point that I made earlier, which is, don't just make radical changes. You know, make an adjustment. Look at what happens. Monitor what happens gather information with regard to what happens, and then make a decision with regard to what should happen going forward. Uh, we're essentially economically deregulated in Indiana, with the exception of the large three ILECs have a current al uh, 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 alternative regulatory plans which expire uh, over the course of the next two and a half years. So they are, they are bound by their alt-reg plan, which is a price cap, significantly lower regulated environment with certain commitments that are attached thereto, most notably build out of broadband. Uh, once those agreements expire, then virtually everything with the exception of basic local service is economically deregulated. That happens in a period of about three years going forward. So again, there's an opportunity to monitor what happens, watch what occurs, report to the legislature, report to the public as well. Uh, I think it's a rather innovative approach to, to taking you know, a phased approach to economic deregulation. And, uh, and if it works the way it should, essentially the commission will be totally out of the business of economic regulation by 2009. We we will no we will we will we do not currently have any authority with regard to cable. You know that occurs on on July first. Yeah, and and at that point our at that point basically it will be a franchise process. So they will they will come in in much the same way that Celex did with a streamlined process. You know to enter the market. It's a uh, it's an interesting question because. Uh, you know, for example, our commission gets calls occasionally about cable, and the answer is we don't regulate it. You know, go to the FCC. Um, and then, some. you know, sometimes we get calls on wireless. And uh, 
statute says we don't regulate wireless. But I understand colloquially that actually sometimes if our consumer affairs people are not terribly busy, they might try to mediate the issue. And so the issue becomes how do you wisely utilize state resources? If, if the legislature wants to allocate money to us to mediate disputes over which we have no enforcement authority, I suppose that's their business. Um, they could do that. You know, I, I've spent an entire Saturday trying to deal with installing an antivirus program on my computer. <laughs> and trust me, I would have loved to be able to call somebody to complain about it. Um, but, you know, to some extent the answer is over what industries do you want to do that and should you do that should you allow that with state commissions merely because it's somehow tangentially related to communications? Yeah, none of those antivirus programs work if you have anything else on your computer that works right. to relate that at That's all. right. Uh, now, we're, maybe we'll just take one more question because, remember, our panelists didn't have lunch today. Uh, <laughs> so David, and David's had his hand up uh, back here, so uh, probably this will be the last one. A couple of years ago, Chairman Powell noting that we'd already passed the midpoint of data as opposed to voice traffic, analog traffic from the federal network, said he thought it was inevitable we were moving to all IP professional network in the country. Uh, do you share that assessment? If so, over roughly what period of time? And if so, what implications does that have for the state PCs that we haven't already talked about today? I guess as part of that, I would add, and this is sort of in the way of uh, wrapping it up <clears throat> to that in the earlier panel one of the questions went to the, the legal authority for the federal government to preempt. Greg talked a little bit about this mm -hmm. his, in his thing but I mean you know this is a, the federalist society <clears throat> only there you know there this issue of federalism and the state's role in our government as a constitutional matter even and there's so there's the question really of assuming that Congress <clears throat> does some of the things or the FCC that, that we've talked about in terms of taking away if it's done on that basis taking away authority the states have traditionally exercised when you're responding to this question right do we all agree uh, I said at the beginning I talked about how we move from an analog to a digital world and, and that that, that has, terms of the, the ease of making jurisdictional determinations and the feasibility that it's it's much different. Do, do, do we agree that as a matter of uh, the, the federal commerce power that, that, that there's we don't have a problem in terms of doing, uh, you know, taking away the state authority to the extent that anyone's advocating uh, that? And I see the lunches being brought for the panelists, so that, that might possibly make the answer even shorter. More succinct. <laughs> okay, now why don't we, you can use anything anyone said to, to wrap up, uh, to make a wrap-up statement. Uh, you know, including that, that question that David asked. Well, like I'll just, I'll... Jumping quickly, I just think that um, as we're moving to this IP network, you've got the Commerce Clause. There's clearly these are interstate networks. There's no question. Preemption, um, yes, it can come. Uh, I think it most likely will need to come federally if you look at the history of the FCC on its own going out and preempting. Few and far between, we've done it. 
when I was there. But it's it doesn't happen quickly, and it doesn't happen um, in broad swaths usually. Um, so uh, I think there's there's a legal case to be made that when you're talking about this kind of federal commerce, that there are definite areas where preemption is appropriate, and it makes sense. Um, and I would suspect that if it's something we want done quickly, it needs to be done legislatively and not through the rulemaking processes at the FCC. And by the way, I have to agree with that. I wanted just to put the question on the table, just you know, uh, rhetorically to deal with it, but I tend to agree with the analysis as a legal matter. I, I think there's no question that uh, Congress can do it, um, and uh, there's probably not much of a question that the FCC could do it. I, I, uh, in April 2004, the FCC issued the decision on the AT&T petition for a declaratory order on its phone-to-phone uh, -phone IP telephony mm -hmm. services. And in that case, the, AT or the uh, FCC did deny the petition, and, and the petition asked for essentially, um, you know, call this an information service because we, you know, somewhere in the middle we have three feet of I you know, IP communication, and and the FCC, I think, legitimately rejected that. But the ruling was limited to um, inter-exchange service that, and there were, there were three prongs. It uses ordinary customer premises equipment with no enhanced functionality. Two, originates and terminates on the PSTN. And three, undergoes no net protocol conversion and provides no enhanced functionality to end users due to the provider's use of IP technology. In my mind, because that was a, a uh, actually it was a conjunctive and, in other words, all three of these uh, things have to be met for it not to be an information service, um, it wouldn't be that hard to escape one of these prongs by, for example, providing enhanced functionality associated with the IP, in which case I think the FCC could distinguish that AT&T ruling. Uh, Larry, Larry, would you go right down um, no, I think technology is rapidly overtaking us, and uh, uh, the states are, are well advised to to follow the approach. You know, I mentioned it earlier the uh, the federalism white paper that Nehruk has put out, um, the traditional approach to jurisdiction separations and that sort of issue. You know, has progressively less relevance as long as in the process we address and do not leave hanging legacies from that that process. In other words, we don't leave the states with liabilities that are historic to the separations process. Um, but if you look at the technology, clearly the technology suggests that, that that's where we, where we need to go. And as has been said on several occasions, the state commissions have uh, more than enough to do with regard to the issues and the ideas that are that are advanced in the white paper, uh, and by the way, if I could put in a plug, uh, the whole DACA paper is something that you should look at. It's very good. Uh, it's excellent. It's it very comprehensive. It addresses other issues that we talk about and around. Uh, and I'd also put in a plug for the neighborhood white paper as well. Just, just real quickly, I'll say that I, I agreed with almost everything Chairman Powell said, but I do, and I do agree that uh, we're inevitably moving to an all IP network. Uh, the period of time, I don't know. The implications for the states is that if we 
regulate that there will be technologies that will get around it and our roles are definitely changing and the fact sooner that we agree to that and move on the better everyone will be I thought for sure that when Greg mentioned that protocol conversions that you know that was a sign that it was I've been trying to figure those out for about 20 years now those net protocol conversions but first of all I want to thank the Federalist Society of course Dean and David Ray for putting this on but I think my point has been more than amply proved about my assertion that these are some of the most outstanding regulators in the country it's been very educational for me it always is to be with them so join me in thanking our